Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading this morning is Galatians 5, uh, verses 13 through 25. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do what you, whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual, immor- sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of God. Good to be with you all. We are 15 days in our 50-day journey through uh, this experience that we we have. It's called uh, learning to breathe. We're just experimenting with a life with the Spirit. And so thank you guys for being a part of that. Just kind of a recap, just to let you know uh, where we've been and where we are today. Week one, we talked about just who the Spirit is, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. We talked about how the Spirit is not a what, it's a who. The Spirit is a person who longs to have a relationship with each of us. The Spirit is a personal presence in our life. Last week, week two, we talked about the Spirit as breath. How the words in in both Hebrew and Greek language, the word for spirit can be interchangeable for breath, and how the spirit longs to fill us, renew us, sustain us, how the spirit's work in our life is to revive us back to life again and again, and that God is as close to you as the air that you're breathing right now. But here we are, we're in week three, and this week we're exploring this idea of what does it mean to walk in the spirit? For those who maybe are newer to faith, that maybe is is like a foreign, unknown idea for you. For those who have been around church for a while, maybe that's a cliche that holds little meaning. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Uh, If we stopped our conversation last week, we could have this idea that the Spirit's role in our life is like this meditative, quiet, reflective relationship, which is all true, but the Spirit's role is much more than that. A life of the Spirit isn't contained in contemplative practices of private spirituality. The Spirit is active in this world. It's dynamic. It's on the move, and it's moving you and I to live differently here and now. If you look at the book of Acts, the role of the Holy Spirit is like this sacred disruptor. And uh, Willie James Jennings, he's this African-American theologian, he said, when you read the book of Acts, you continue to see the Holy Spirit doing one thing, making people do the things they don't want to do. The Holy Spirit is at work 
just breaking down barriers and lines. It's tearing down the fences of ethnic division, religious division. And the Spirit met people where they were in radical grace, but never left them there. The Spirit continued to forge a new reality in this world, continued Jesus' work of bringing his kingdom into all of the world. And that is, if people were willing to walk in the Spirit. So this morning, we're going to spend most of our time in Galatians chapter 5, a little bit about this letter. Um, After the resurrected Jesus breathed on his disciples and gave them the commandment to receive his Spirit, he then sent them off into the world to bear witnesses to Jesus' kingdom throughout the whole world. What's unique for us, we probably, I, I think in my own life, I hadn't read the New Testament much like this until recently, But the people of of the early church, they really began to think what Jesus was doing was this revival movement within the Jewish faith. Like this was a renewal experience for the Jewish community. And what began to happen, it baffled people, blew people, uh, their expectations out the door. What the Spirit was doing was much more than a revival movement within the Jewish community. Jesus was his kingdom was claiming people who were on the other side of that fence, who were way, way past the Jewish community. And the role of the Holy Spirit was to break down all the fencing that existed in the world to display that this kingdom belonged to all, just as Jesus claimed all of humanity. And so this movement moved uh, throughout this region, including modern-day Turkey in a city called Galatia. And a question that began to emerge within this mixture of a Jewish kind of community where people are being grafted in, a question began to emerge over and over again, which is, what's supposed to guide our life? Like, what is supposed to guide our community and our individual lives? How are we making decisions? What's okay? What's not okay? And the church really struggled with figuring out how to reconcile that issue. How do I make decisions, big and small? Is there a rule book or a standard that we can have that can help us navigate this world? And the church in Galatia seemed to demonstrate uh, a problem that exists for you and I, I believe. And Paul is trying to tackle two different trappings that this church was experiencing, that pulling people away from a life with the Spirit, where they were learning to walk in the Spirit. Two different trappings. And they were the trappings of the flesh and the law. And so we find that Galatia was experiencing these two different problems. They're seemingly opposite in nature, but they have the same result. They're the trappings of the law and the flesh. So Paul spends this fifth chapter trying to break them both down. And it begins with this argument in chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not Let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. A life with Jesus is about a life of freedom. Before Jesus said anything publicly, his first like sermon he ever gave, he went to the temple, opened up the scroll, and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me so that I can deliver those who have been enslaved. I want to set the captive free. And I don't think that Jesus was only talking about delivering enslaved people, although that is a part of the heart of God, but it's also about delivering people from more subtle shackles. It's for freedom 
that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and stop putting on the yoke of slavery. That word yoke is something kind of foreign to us. What is Paul speaking out against? Well, for the Jewish community in particular, that idea of the, of the yoke really is about the law. The Jewish understanding of someone's devotion to God was measured by how rigorous, how um, intense they were about being faithful to the law, God's word. They wanted to be faithful to the commandments that we find in the Old Testament. And their religious devotion and standing was proven by how careful they were to not break the rules. The more immaculate, the more moral, uh, the greater the moral scorecard, the greater the religious devotion and standing that person would have. And as you know, with religious scorekeeping, the stakes always go higher and higher. And one of the greatest ways you can measure your morality is by judging other people that aren't abiding by the same thing. So rabbis and teachers, they would make up their own rule book, their own understanding of what does it mean to, to obey the law. And they, anyone who wanted to follow them would have to follow their rule book. But the word that they used for it was this word yoke. So if you followed a, a rabbi, you wanted to, to be under his study, you would put on his yoke, just like you're a livestock, and you would follow him. You would abide by that person's, his understanding of what does it mean to be faithful to God's law. And what the people were experiencing, especially in Jesus' time, is that yokes are meant to drive people harder and faster. It was not bringing people life. Their interpretation of what was right and wrong, their yoke. And when Paul was saying, don't be burdened again by the yoke of slavery, what he's saying is, this empty religious rule-keeping you're doing is just another form of slavery. And everything, Paul was saying, everything that Jesus was up to was about deliverance, about freedom. And we can look at our own life. We know that this is not just a Jewish concept. Many of us still are tempted to look at the moral leaders, the, the pastors, the preachers, the theologians, or whoever else we we know the comfort it is to just put on someone else's understanding of what it means to be right by God. There's still a comfort in being given a moral checklist. And if I'm doing all these things, I am good and faithful and I'm pure. God is happy with me because, look, I'm, I've proven it. Like, we know that it's comforting to have that black and white, right and wrong thing given to us. But the problem with yokes are this, is that they can be easily used to exploit those who are wearing them. They can exhaust the one who has this yoke that's a burden. And religion can be a, another a subtle form of captivity. We can get stuck in systems of hollow religion when we're shackled to systems of shame and guilt. We can be in bondage to toxic religion or to manipulative leaders. I know many people... Your story in this room includes stories of that. And that which was meant to be deliverance is just another form of slavery. This is why one of the most shocking things that Jesus did is he came not only to set people free from sin, but from empty religion. 
Jesus came to set people free from the shackles and the yokes of religion and law to show that God's not into moral scorekeeping that exhausts and depletes people. God's not in some, in some system that we judge other people so that we buoy ourselves up in standing. One of the most comforting things that we find Jesus saying is in Matthew 11, he said this, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am humble at heart, and you're going to find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I used to think that this yoke that he was talking about was the yoke of sin, when in fact I believe it's actually the yoke of, of religion that Jesus was trying to get people to take off, to follow him who's gentle and humble in heart, to show sometimes Jesus has us have a yoke so that we can be told, stop, rest, come to me if you're weary and burdened, and I'm going to set you free. And Paul wants the church of Galatia to know this. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So stand firm. Don't put on the yoke of empty religious rule keeping. But Paul, uh, Paul wanted this church in Galatia to set aside the emptiness of law to learn to walk in the Spirit. Now, the people in Galatia had a particular problem. What, and we see Paul in chapter 5 trying to really focus on one particular issue. It had to do with circumcision. Everyone's favorite conversation, Right? Circumcision, we love it. Uh, Jen uh, asked me a couple of days ago, hey, what is the sermon going to be about this Sunday? And to make her uncomfortable, I go, oh, we're going to talk about circumcision. And I love my wife because she knows me. She, gets, she leans in and goes, don't make circumcision jokes. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, thanks for the tip. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll cut it out. I'll cut it out. I mean, that's on her. That's on her. She should have known better. I wasn't going to tell any jokes, but she told me not to. <laughs> Guys, it's biblical. It's biblical. Though it's a foreign concept to us, circumcision was a significant marker for the Jewish people. It was how people were grafted into the story of being God's chosen people. And in, in Galatia, people thought that if you wanted to be a part of this Christian movement, that you would have to be circumcised as well. And Paul, here in this chapter, is adamantly saying, no, you're going back to the law. It's not about that kind of scorekeeping. For Paul, this is what Jesus came to free us from, the ethnic and religious fencing that divides people, that was used to exclude people from being a part of Jesus's kingdom. This is why uh, Paul said, and this is in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, for in Christ Jesus Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. It's like going to Chuck E. Cheese and spending like 20 bucks on games to get like a handful of like these tokens and you go and you turn them in for a stupid eraser, you know? Like it has no value. And listen to this profound word. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. I believe every Jesus follower needs to memorize this. The only thing that counts is faith expressed 
in love. This is the new marker of being grafted into the kingdom of God, the new marker of what it means to be included as God's people. It's not the marker of cheap religion, but it's the marker of being someone who is being fueled by faith that's making itself evident in love. This is how you know you are a child of God as you are living into that more and more. You could just hear people, though, in Galatians say, well, if we get rid of the law, does that anything goes? I mean, how are people going to know how to live? It seems fluffy, like this idea of just being people of love. This is the slippery slope, right? But that's not the case. If we get rid of the law, what do we have? Well, we have the, the expression of love as Jesus defined it. We replace this, this heavy yoke of religion and law and rule-keeping, and we experience, we put on the yoke of Jesus' love. And we remember the only thing that counts is this. This isn't the slippery slope to liberalism or secularism. We are bound by a new law. It is a faith life demonstrated in love. And we have the Spirit who wants to grow in us the ability to love like Jesus loved. That is the standard. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I think it's more than just our access to heaven. It's our access into knowing what does it mean to be faithful, what guides our life. It's the way in which Jesus loves. This is our role. It's to know that love and embody it in this world. So we set our eyes on Jesus. And we depend on the spirit of Jesus at work in us. Not just a rule book. Not just another yoke. So the law is one trapping but there is another trapping that seems so very opposite, but it has the same end, end problem. Paul seems to be equally concerned about this problem. You, my brothers, this is verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, yet serve one another humbly in love. Paul uses this word flesh uh, to describe the destructive, self-centered living that we all have capacity for. So flesh is when... It's like I'm choosing to live based on self, and it has destructive effects on other people. And Paul is wanting to cr critique how some people sought to use that freedom that they have from the law just to go and live however they want to. It's like baptized selfishness. Now that I'm set free from the law, everything is fair game. But in fall, and Paul is saying that's not what Jesus came to do. That's not true freedom. And how do we know if we're led by the flesh, if that's what's guiding our life? Well, Paul shares a list of vices in verse 19. Don't you love them? Um, I actually really, I, I, when I was reading through this, I actually really liked the way Eugene Peterson translated these difficult verses um, in his translation, The Message. So can we, I want to read that. So this is the fruit of what a life is being led by, by the flesh. It's repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, I think that's idols, <laughs> magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfying once, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or to be loved, Divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, a vicious habit of depersonalize everyone into a rival, 
uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parody of community, I could go on. These are the markers of a life that's guided by the flesh. And um, though there's a laundry list of vices there, there's something that all of these vices share in common, is that all of these pursuits end with the self. It ends in me. It's a total disregard of others, of goodness and beauty. This type of living ends in the self. I, I think C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, is super helpful for um, he wrote this book to reimagine what heaven and hell could be like. And he describes hell not as like eternal burning with, in a cave with stalagmites and stalactites, which I had as a child. If his idea of hell is something very, very different. He, of course, fiction, is writing and is imagining this. And for his idea of hell, it's when people become more and more centered upon themselves. In hell, people grow further and further away from each other because they can't stand each other. So they become more and more isolated. And as they do so, they become more and more centered in, this, in themselves and they physically begin to turn inwards, become more bent over into themselves. And as they, as they live like this, they become smaller and smaller people. And Paul would say, living for oneself is just another form of slavery. It's just another form of slavery. It's just different from the law, but it's just as powerful. And what I find interesting is that these two options of the law and the flesh is how most debates are framed within the church. These are the two options we're presented. We have God's uh, word, we have the law, we have do's and don'ts, and then we have the flesh, which is like we just get to live however we want. It's either religion or self-sitterness. It's rule-keeping or rule-abolishing. But that isn't how Paul is saying we are called to live. It's not between these two options. In fact, Jesus attacked both of these trappings too. Famously, he shared a parable with the archetypes of law and flesh. Can anyone recall it? What is the parable Jesus said about these two archetypes? Oh, I feel so smart right now. No one knows the right answer. It's the prodigal son story. You have the one son who said, forget everyone. I'm doing what I want. What's coming to me, it's mine. And cast away concern for anyone else and live for self. And then you had the older brother who did everything right. Both of those people experiences were slavery. And neither of them saw the true gift, which was relationship with their father. One of them, one of them in the end saw it. But we have, what Jesus was attacking was both living by the law or living by the flesh. And I'm curious for us, which of these trappings are more present in your life? Which tried which tries to guide your life and your, your decisions? Is it by moral scorekeeping or just choosing the self and pleasure and happiness with disregard for others? My sense, my guess is that with a community like ours, uh, more and more I find that people in our church are trying to piece together a life with the church. They have an affection towards Jesus, but a dis a disregard for church experiences in their past, either through pain or other experiences. And so my experience is when people are trying to reconstruct a life with Jesus, we have the tendency to dismiss empty religion 
and baptize the flesh. We are very permission-giving when people are trying to form a new life with God. We reject empty religion and give ourselves license to enjoy that which was repressed. (laughs) That's a temptation. But we need to remember that the Spirit is also the Holy Spirit. Holiness. I grew up thinking that holiness was this idea that anything blameless and impure could never enter into God's presence. There's this radiant hatred of anything that was broken. That's my idea of holiness. And I have had a very complicated relationship with holiness in my life. Jesus radically redefined holiness. The type of holiness was not moral perfection. What Jesus wanted people to experience was this this courageous willingness to surrender themselves to forgiveness. It was confession. It was the boldness to bring everything that was in the dark into the light of God's love. I am so, like, I cling to the reality that Jesus recalled this Old Testament phrase, I desire mercy. I want to give mercy. I don't desire your sacrifices. The holiness that we see in Jesus was this longing to have the broken things in this world come into his presence so they could experience healing and wholeness. Jesus would say the holiness that he appreciated was not the Pharisee who was proud of his spiritual morality, his supreme spiritual morality that led him to pray, God, thank you for not making me sinful like all these other people. Instead, the standard that Jesus lifted up was the person who knew their own brokenness and said, Lord, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. Can I remind us, Paul's words here, the only thing that counts is faith expressed in love. If a version of holiness does not eventuate in love, it's worthless. It doesn't count. It's not what God wants. If holiness doesn't move us to become more and more people of love, it's not Jesus' idea of holiness. We should consider where in our lives are we shackled to the flesh. Where should, we should do an honest analysis of where the flesh is present in my life. Where does my life bend towards myself regardless for how it affects other people? And as we turn from being guided by the flesh, we need to make sure we don't trade the flesh out for another law. All right, I'm gonna hate that part of me and I'm gonna try super hard to be perfect. Instead, we need to try incredibly difficult to abide in Jesus, to remain in him. Jesus had set us free for a life guided by the Spirit. And to be guided by the Spirit means that we live with a greater sense of awareness and surrender to the Spirit's work in our life. We grow more and more attentive to the Spirit and we discover what does it mean to walk in the Spirit in our life. Paul said in Galatians 5, 16, so I say, walk by the Spirit. This is our calling as God's people to walk by the Spirit. Since we live by, this is verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I like this idea of the Spirit going, come on, let's come come with me. I got plans for us today, come on. Our life is, is to be breathing in the Spirit's presence and to move through this world following the Spirit's leadership in our life. But I know for most of you, our question in my life is, but what does that actually mean? What does it actually mean to to follow the Spirit? It feels disorienting to to give up your religious rule-keeping because it's so simple. And it feels like a big sacrifice to give up living based on my self-centeredness. So what does it actually mean to follow the Spirit? 
Doesn't this just become the wild, wild west where we just feel like the Spirit's telling us to do things or not to do things and we just make it up as we go? What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means that we live with a greater attentiveness and surrender to the Spirit throughout our days. We learn to breathe in the Spirit and we ask for the wind of the Spirit to blow us and to form us as we keep in step in the way of Jesus. We are apprentices to the way of Jesus. We are learning how it is to be people of love. So how do we actually consider if we're being guided by the Spirit or if it's just a bad meal that we ate or it's just emotions that are guiding me? Thankfully, Galatians 5 concludes with talking about the fruits of the Spirit. I find this imagery so helpful because learning to understand what it means to walk in the Spirit, we have this imagery of this fruit that's, that is produced. The a fruit's only job is to remain connected to the vine. That's its only role. A, a fruit that's not connected to the vine, it's going to wither, it's going to die, it's never going to bud. And in the same way, for us, our greatest role is to stay connected to Jesus, is to be with Jesus, to, to focus on the Spirit of Jesus, to look at the Spirit of Jesus at work in Scripture, and to try to find that Spirit at work in this world. This is why walking in the Spirit is first and foremost about intimacy, connection. This is actually the problem with the WWJD bracelet culture that is, uh, is present in many uh, of our uh, Christian circles, is it's not, our primary job is not just going and doing what Jesus did. Our primary job is not just living like Jesus. It begins to, with being with Jesus. That's our primary calling is to be with Jesus so we're attentive and we know what, the, what it's like to have a life with Jesus so that we go in this world and we try to follow that way of love in this world and, and what the kingdom is doing in our midst. It's about partnering with the Spirit. Partnering, not going and doing, not achieving, but partnering with what the Spirit is up to in this world. Our devotion is the overflow of the intimacy that, and friendship that we have with the Spirit. And as we become more and more like Jesus, which will happen if we stay connected to Jesus, as we become more like him, it's inevitable that we will be moved by the Spirit to make a difference in this world. So what are these fruits? What are these natural byproducts of a life with Jesus? Well, they are the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul would say, against such things, there is no law. As we walk with Jesus, joy should come out of our life more and more. If we remain connected to the Spirit, gentleness emerges from our life. And this is good news. I personally have begun feeling the effects of being middle-aged more and more. Someone explained becoming middle-aged is like going through a second puberty. But instead of growing and getting stronger, everything starts to fall apart. <laughs> I sleep with a knee pillow now. I have back stretches I do. I use my, uh, my phone's flashlight to read menus, and I just discovered Steely Dan. I don't care. I love it. And my annual physical is becoming more and more important. My yearly checkup is like this healthy marker to establish a standard for good health. A good news for us who know the Spirit, a promise that we have for those who are walking in the Spirit is we can become more and more fruitful and healthy the older that we get. A sign of spiritual health are these fruits right here. 
This is the marker of a life guided not by the law, not by the flesh, but by the spirit. So that begs the question, friends. I'm gonna meddle just for a little bit. Do these fruits mark my life more and more? Or more convicting, am I a more patient person today than I was two years ago? Do I have greater self-control today than I did five years ago? Does the fruit of peace emerge from my life more and more, or am I becoming cranky and judgmental? If we choose to learn to breathe the Spirit, if we walk in the Spirit, we will display the fruits of being with Jesus. And though our bodies age, we can become more vibrant and beautiful and true. This is why I'm sure you've had this experience. Some of the most vibrant spiritual people I've ever met are people old in their age. They have let go of a lot of things, but the Spirit is at work in their life, and this fruit is emerging from them. Though their body is fading away, they are so fruitful. They are becoming more and more tender and loving. That could be us. That could be the work of the Spirit in our life. So this week, we're going to explore what it means to walk in the Spirit. And it's a trading out an easy way of like having the law to like reflecting and seeing where the Spirit is at work and where the fruits of the Spirit are at work. This takes time and attentiveness. So our, uh, being a church, one of our values is being practice-based, not just hearing content and reading content, but actually experimenting with our lives of following Jesus. And so the practice for this week is going to be something called the prayer of examine. Has anyone done the prayer of examine here? A couple people? Okay, so the prayer of examine is a type of prayer that's made popular through the legacy of St. Ignatius. And so this is a different kind of prayer, uh, it is a time where we set aside some space and time with the Spirit in a posture of prayer. We review our day. We examine our day. And in a posture of prayer, we consider, where do I feel close to the Spirit in my day? When do these fruits emerge in my life? Where did I feel under attack or alone? Where was I driven by the flesh or driven by the law? And the beauty of this type of prayer is that it reinforces what I believe is essential if we are wanting to walk in the Spirit, is that God often comes to us in the form of our life. God comes to us in the form of our life, trying to shape us, inform us, and grow us. And so with the prayer of examine, we slow down to consider, what has God been doing in my day? Can I pray to be that certain fruits of the Spirit grow more as I remain in the Spirit of Jesus? This isn't about giving yourself a grade. It's about considering how we can walk in the Spirit. This is our call. And the beautiful thing is Jesus is with us, wanting us to grow in this way. Uh, today, we're going to turn our attention and our affections to somewhere else. If the only thing that counts is faith expressed in love, if you ever wonder if it's true, we have a table. We have a table to display how Jesus made it count through being a person of deep and abiding connection to the Spirit, expressing itself in love. One of the greatest representations is this table. And so we're going to turn now to a time of communion and see how Jesus expressed his faith through love. And we're going to reap the fruits of the Spirit. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.